0: Batten and Brexit. Hello and welcome to Batten and Brexit with UKIP MEP for London, Gerard Batten. Hi, Gerard. Hello, Ian. Uh, This series is brought to you by the EFDD Group in the European Parliament. The idea is that each episode, Gerard will talk about those big areas of EU policy that have either riled him or intrigued him. And, of course, a selection of your questions so just tell us, what's the purpose of a podcast like this, Gerard?
1: Well, I want to try a new a new thing, Ian, here. Um, you know, I've got uh, eight and a half million constituents. So I'm one of eight MEPs that represent the whole of London. Sometimes my constituents write to me and say, how come we have never hear for you? And I say, well, you know, if I sent you all a letter with a second-class stamp, it cost me £5 million. Pounds. So there's one good reason. I mean, I've tried various things. You know, I'd be, I've got, obviously got a website. I use Twitter. I'm on national TV and radio uh, now and again. All the main channels... Uh, usually at unsocial hours, I have to say, and uh, this is another another string to the bow. I'm trying to see if this will work for me to get the message out and what I stand for, what I'm, you know, what I do in the European Parliament, to more of the people who are interested.
0: There is a there's a curious question, I suppose, about why a, a UKIP person is an MEP at all. I mean, bearing in mind your whole raison d'être is to get out of the EU, so why bother almost endorsing it or supporting it?
1: By being an MEP, well, there's a bit of a paradox there because the um, European Union, in its uh, legislation, insisted that all countries have a form of proportional representation for the European Parliament. So Britain was forced to adopt a PR system for the Euro- European elections back in '99, even though we don't have it in um, parliamentary elections or local elections. And of course, that meant that parties like mine could win because people actually get what they vote for, because it's proportional. So we started winning seats back in 1999, I ran in 2004, and of course the reason for doing it is because we can win. Our main policy, of course, is withdrawal from the European Union... Um, we won successively more seats and more votes in each uh, election from 1999 onwards. And, of course, in the last one, in 2014, we were the biggest party, the biggest UK party in the uh, European Parliament, with, I think, about 26% of the vote. So I'm there because it gives me a platform. It gives me uh, an elected position, which is why you're talking to me, it's why I've been on national TV and radio, it's because without it I'm just another man with an opinion. With this, I'm an elected representative who can promote the message of the people that voted for me, which is that they want to leave the European Union. But ultimately,
0: uh, if you're a a, a UKIP member um, uh, of the European Parliament, the the campaign,
1: successful campaign, to leave the EU puts you out of a job. Every one of our MEPs, our candidates and our MEPs knew that that they're actually uh, Turkeys voting for Christmas. So we're actually there to promote... Not many politicians, you can say that, are there to promote their own redundancy, which is what we were because we're a principled party and it's a principled position. Um, And uh, we are all expecting to lose our jobs, hopefully in the near future, when Britain really does leave the European Union. But we will be there till the end because we're arguing for a proper exit from the EU. And we'll make sure that we're arguing that as long as we possibly can until it actually happens. Are you suspicious about the government's line on when we will leave the EU or even if we will leave the EU? Well, you see, now, I did write a little book on this uh, nearly four years ago now called um, The Road to Freedom in which I described, first of all, at that point, the idea of a referendum was just an idea. Uh, Cameron hadn't... Uh, well, he. Had, I think he'd promised it at that point, but it was still debatable about whether he'd deliver it. So I actually laid out what I thought would happen if there was a referendum, if the Leave side won and what would happen afterwards. Uh, and what I said was we've got a political establishment, all the main parties, House of Commons, House of Lords, don't want it to happen, most of the media don't want it to happen, so therefore we would see a relentless campaign to actually delay it, impede it and eventually overturn it. And, of course, is what, that is exactly what's happened since the 24th of June 2016, the day after the referendum. I don't trust the government at all. I mean, Mrs May is a Remainer. There are very few genuine... Levers in the cabinet, in the government, and of course, what have they done since the referendum day? Well, for months, nothing happened at all. We didn't even get a speech from Mrs. May about what it was, what leaving might look like until I think that was January 2017. Um, she didn 't actually trigger Article Fifty until the March of that year, and um, david davis didn 't actually wasn 't sent off to Brussels to talk about leaving I think until the summer of uh, last year so there 's been incredible delay in getting this started they 're going about it entirely the wrong way, which I can tell you something about. Uh, And, of course, where are we now? Well, we keep on turning up, or our ministers keep on turning up in Brussels and say, well, please, how may we leave Mr Barnier, sir? How much is it going to cost us? And what impediments are you going to put in the way of making it happen, instead of saying, we voted to leave, we are going to leave, we're going to do it under our legislation, not yours. You've always maintained there's a
0: a, a quicker and easier way to get out. Yeah,
1: I mean, this was the substance of the the little book I wrote and explaining all the legal aspects of why we can do it this way. I I actually expanded that into an EU exit plan, which is available on my website. You can pick it up on the right-hand corner of the website. And basically, if we were going to leave and if the government was serious... What should have happened, and still could happen, it's not too late, is for Parliament to repeal the 1972 European Communities Act, because we are only members by virtue of that Act of Parliament. Treaties have no force in law until they become Acts of Parliament, so you repeal the Act of Parliament, you left. So this is
0: the original act that got us into the EU? That's it. You simply use parliamentary... Sovereignty to, to repeal it. To repeal it.
1: Anything that Parliament has passed, it can repeal. Why
0: is nobody else saying
1: this? I think some are. I mean, I know that I've had the, you know, I've had it on the grapevine that certain ministers are, agree and not necessarily read. They've got their own, their own idea. They know how it's, it should work, and they've actually got similar ideas to me. But of course, the government isn't promoting that. All legislation would stay in place. All EU legislation would stay in place because it's all been made acts of Parliament, or it applies uh, by other means. Um, so in the repeal uh, bill, and in fact I used one that had been drafted by Sir William Cash MP. I didn't write, didn't have to write my own because he'd already drafted something saying exactly what I've said: repeal the 1972 Act. You keep all the stuff in place under the under the uh, repeal bill, but then you start repealing and amending. And there was obviously, we've had 40, what is it now, 45 years of EU legislation. So you can't do it all overnight. Some of it is far more important uh, than others. So what you do is you then prioritise what you're going to repeal and amend. And you go to the European Union and you say, in the nicest possible way, well, we've left. What we're going to start talking about immediately is trade, immigration, farming, and fishing, for example. So this whole thing has been blown out of all proportion in the complications that they're trying to say entails, and it doesn't necessarily do that at all. On trade, you can say to the European Commission, of course we want to continue with tariff-free trade. It's in your interest to do that. So let's have a tariff-free trade agreement. You can have everything you want except one thing, freedom of movement of goods, services, and capital. You can't have people, because we're going to control immigration. That isn't complicated, because the EU already has various trade agreements on a regional basis around the world, with comprises about 58 different countries. And Now I, I wrote to the um, European Parliament Research Department and they came back and they confirmed these may or may not include tariffs, and they never include freedom of movement of people under the treaty. So these things already exist to some extent. It wouldn't be difficult to come up with a, a, a continued tariff-free trade agreement, which, as I said, has everything in it except the freedom of movement of people. Which is not necessarily under any other trade agreement that they have. So you could do that, and I think you could do that fairly quickly. On the immigration and the mutual rights of citizens, you could agree that quite easily and say, well, whoever's here can keep their existing rights. Our citizens in your countries keep their existing rights, but that doesn't apply anymore. Um, depends. You know, we're going to have an immigration system. Some countries may have free entry, others may need visas, uh, which is normal practice for most countries in the world. To take that step,
0: which sounds, as you put it, rather straightforward, the fact that we haven't gone that way as a country, do you think, the, uh, have the are you sort of suggesting here the EU have deliberately made it this complicated?
1: They don't have to because we're accepting the, co- you know, our government and our ministers, instead of going to the EU and saying, well, this is how it's going to work, uh, well, they have no incentive for us to leave. Why would they want us to leave? We are the second biggest paymaster into the budget most years. Um, they can, you know, we've got open borders. We've got 3.3 million European citizens. They've only got about 1.2 million of ours. So they've got, you know, they're they're unemployed and their excess population who want to move somewhere else. They've come to the UK, and uh, our population is not such a large number of moved there. So the, all the whole incentive for the EU is to actually keep what they've got. If we walk away. They've got two big problems. The first one is the hole in the budget that we're going to um, create because we're not going to be giving them about £18-20 gross every year. And the second one is that it's a blow to their ideology that a country has dared to leave uh, and uh doesn't no longer thinks this idea of european integration is a good that's one. That's where it really hurts. And that's it? what they're really worried about. Uh, and the money thing actually they could make that up fairly easy. All you've got to do is to go to the other 27 countries and say well britains leaving actually by the time you take off the rebate and you take off our money that they then spend in our country you're only left with about 10 billion. I say only 10 billion it's big enough. But you could share that out amongst the other 27 countries who are left and they could make up that shortfall. If they think that the EU is such a great idea, why wouldn't they want to do that? In terms of this
0: time frame, because there is some suggestion that it might not pan out, that 2019 we all go back to Mm. blue passports and a life of autonomy without the, um, the, the EU looking over us, that it might go on much longer than that. 2021 2022.
1: Well this is the this is the idea and this is what I described would probably happen. They they need to de- they can't turn around after the referendum and say well you voted but we're not going to pay any attention to it and we're not doing it anyway. That wouldn't go down very well, would it? So they've got to say well it's very complicated it's going to take a long time. They delay it as long as possible uh, in the hope I think that the long-term strategy is to delay it up until the next general election and then you could well have a Labour Party and a Conservative Party running on the same basis, which is that, oh, well, it was all a big mistake, we're not going to do it anyway. What I fear is, is that Mrs May, if she's still in post, could actually come up with a withdrawal agreement that is so bad that it's actually not like leaving the EU in reality. We leave in name but not in reality. She's already promised them that we're going to pay billions. I think the current figure is, uh, well, she said 20, I think. They're now asking for 40. There is no defined figure at the moment. There's no plans for controlling immigration from the EU. That doesn't seem to be happening. And, of course, she's promised them a new security treaty, uh, which means that we would continue to be bound in to their plans for a European armed forces, implementing European foreign policy, and we would continue with all the uh, police and criminal justice measures like the European arrest warrant. And there's lots of other ways that she's talking about you know, this. I hate this term, but soft Brexit, so that we don't really actually leave at all. So you might have an alternative in the election where, you know, you've got this this watered-down exit, or by that time that might be bold enough to say the whole thing's a bad idea and we don't want to implement it. And, of course, a new parliament could actually say that it has a fresh mandate from the people and it doesn't have to implement the referendum. That's the big danger.
0: Mike in Brentwood emailed and said, do MEPs have any real power? Uh, That's always the question, isn't it, as to whether you guys actually uh, change laws, can influence legislation, or whether it's something that ultimately just defers to these commissioners who appear to work to an agenda
1: that most of us, I think, are pretty unaware of. Yeah, it's amazing that People don't really know how the European Parliament works. I'm not surprised because it's not really talked about you know on mass media uh, TV and radio very much. What people don't realize is that MEPs cannot propose or repeal legislation. All legislation is proposed by the Commission. It has an army of civil servants that proposes legislation. That comes then before the Parliament in the form of directives or regulations. That has to go through a committee process. where well, we have got some more power now than we had in the past. But that goes through the committee, and the committee can then add amendments to it. We then get to vote on that final product in the Parliament in what's called plenary sessions. Now, um, whatever comes out of that process, the Commission's uh, proposal for a directive or regulation amended by the Parliament... Then goes back to the commission. If they don't like what we've done to their directive, they don't have to implement it. They can say, "Well, you've made a complete shambles of this; it's dog's breakfast." We're not going to actually implement it at all. So essentially, they can trump whatever yes, they suggestions can, they or can refuse something. to implement what it is that we've actually. And does that happen? Done. Uh, it has happened on occasion. I mean, one I always remember because this was in my first term. There was something called the ports directive. Uh, first, certainly, it was seen by the people who work in the ports as kind of privatising. All across France, you had the dock workers threatening to you know, riot outside the Parliament. They all turned up. And actually, that was voted down. And I remember the Commissioner came back and he said, well, I'm very disappointed in this. He said, but what we'll do is we'll come back to the Parliament, in what I hope will be a more compliant Parliament in the future. Now, it took about 10 years, but quite recently, we actually did vote on another edition of the Ports Directive, and it went through. Uh, so... We have stopped things. The parliaments are generally have stopped things. Uh, there was another one that got voted down in recent years, which was on intellectual copyright. What they wanted to do is they wanted to be able to copyright ideas. But that was ideas. an interesting debate, wasn't it? Well, that, that, we had thousands of emails on that from people across yeah. the European Union because they wanted to copyright ideas. For example, if somebody invented the idea of a spreadsheet, Nobody else could attempt to make a spreadsheet because they would have copyrighted the idea for that. You couldn't have a Microsoft spreadsheet and an Apple spreadsheet. No, somebody's copywritten that idea and therefore nobody else can take it up. That caused uh, uproar across Europe, especially amongst people in the you know, uh, software industry and the media and designers and people like that. So the Parliament actually voted that one down and we killed that one. But very rarely do you get something like that. Most of the legislation actually goes through. And, of course, directives, that then goes back to the Commission... They have to apply those laws in the national countries. You don't have a choice. But you do have some freedom about how you apply it. And Britain always, as we've heard this phrase, gold plates it. So we always obey it to the letter. Whereas some other states who are not as uh, enthusiastic about the rule of law as we are actually ignore quite a lot of it uh, okay. and don't, well, they may, they may implement it but not actually <laughs> obey it. And on regulations, they automatically apply in the nation state. Parliament doesn't even see them. couldn't even debate them, they automatically apply. And these are usually on, you know, technical issues, but nevertheless things that affect people's daily life. And our Parliament has given up all right to actually um, even comment on them, never mind have any power to refuse them. We've uh, said at the beginning that
0: this series of podcasts, Gerard, is all about the kind of things you feel passionately about. Um, And on the next episode, we'll get more into some of the the nuts and bolts of the specific issues. But just to wrap up on this one, pulse fishing. Most people would have never heard of... Pulse fishing. Uh, what is
1: it? Why is it a problem? Right, OK. Everyone's heard of the common fisheries policy uh, because that has been described as, uh, you know, an ecological obscenity. You know, where where you catch fish and if they're not part of the quota, the fish have to throw them back dead. People have been trying to reform that for years. A few months ago, we voted on a reform to the common fisheries policy... But that was just an overall principle of reforming it. We're now getting into more of the nuts and bolts. And one of the things that's coming up, it may come up fairly quickly in January, it may we may be able to delay it until February, is on something called pulse fishing. And what pulse fishing is, is electric currents are sent down to the seabed to kill fish. It's a bit like throwing a hand grenade into a pond, uh, if I can describe the it. You electrocute fish. You electrocute the fish. Um, and... Uh, they then float to the surface. The problem with it is that it also kills everything else on the seabed, all the, all the, the small marine life, the, the little creatures that the fish feed on, uh, and it is ecologically very, very damaging. Now, that is banned in most places in the world, including in China. Some years ago, the EU gave a derogation on this and allowed it to happen, uh, and a colleague of mine, Mike Hookham, who's the fishery spokesman, was telling me he was in a committee meeting where the commissioner... We're saying, oh well, it's only a trial period, and there is only about eighty um, fishing vessels actually doing this, which may be true. But the trial period has gone on for twenty years. <laughs> so, what are they trialling? When are they going to make it's their a minds up? Trial so, there's, right. there's, and, and what Mike said is that he thinks it's quite a lot more than the eighty yeah. vessels actually doing it, and they're doing it in our fishing waters in British territorial waters, which, of course, there's no such thing anymore. Uh, Our listeners should realise we don't have territorial waters anymore. They're only EU waters. So this is going on. UKIP MEPs through the EFDD group have actually put amendments to this to say that this should not apply in our territorial waters during the transition period. So although we don't want a transition period what the EU is doing trying to do is to keep control of fishing policy in our waters and Mr Barnier said this quite recently so we could see a situation where we leave or don't really leave uh, and they're still controlling how we fish in our waters and doing this what i think is an absolutely disgusting method of fishing which is just to blast the seabed kill everything on it and just take the uh, fish that you actually need and an and area of policy
0: there. that most people would really have no idea about no why would or they, they? You I mean, heard of yeah
1: of it. i mean you know they are if I just say one more word about this, how the policy comes through, because there are about 20 committees, 19 or 20 committees in the European Parliament, that are constantly examining directives from the Commission. When they haven't got a directive to examine and put amendments on, they invent new policies. For that. Wouldn't it be a good idea? It's what I call the Harry Seacombe School of Politics. Uh If I ruled the world, wouldn't it be great if we did this or the other? These are called own initiative reports. I call them hot air reports. And in fact, the last time I asked the question of the Parliament on this as how much of what we vote on is legislative, it was less than 50%. More than 50% is actually these hot air reports, which are then give MEPs something to do in Brussels and means we have something to do in Strasbourg, where the plenary sessions are, where we actually go and vote on the legislation. So if we're running short of stuff, to vote on... Let's produce a few own initiative reports to keep uh, people busy and, I don't know, legislate on the uniform size of wine glasses or something. They probably already do that. Well, it's very important (laughs) if you like your wine, isn't it? The one I I always remember is when we voted on a directive on the uniform height of brake lights on farm vehicles. Because it's very important that wherever you are in the EU, there is a uniform height for the brake light on the farm vehicle you might be looking at. It's confused me a lot of times (laughs) driving in the EU
0: about those... Pesky lights on farm vehicles. Listen, Gerard, if people want to get in touch uh, for a question for a future episode, what is the best way to contact you? Probably
1: send me an email, gerard.batten at btinternet.com. And then uh, when we do record these, Ian, we'll try and work in as many of those questions as possible. Please keep them polite. <laughs> Please keep them relevant. Asking a lot. <laughs> relevant to what's coming through the EU. Uh, You know, how the Parliament works, uh, anything like that, I'd be pleased to try and answer. And of course, you can uh, subscribe to this
0: podcast as well, which means that it will come automatically into your phone or tablet on a regular basis. So do make sure you do that. Thank you, Gerard. You're welcome. Thank you. Gerard Batten, MEP for London, with us here on the Batten and Brexit podcast.